Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The White House trying to clarify after President Biden suggests he has cancer due to the oil industry. This as the president takes climate issues into his own hands. How does a global minimum tax on corporations sound? Over 100 countries support the plan, and so does the Biden administration. But some House Republicans and one European nation oppose it. A Russian official reveals Moscow's expanded goals for the war in Ukraine and the reasons for the new targets. And what's the Pentagon's reaction? A political crisis and market woes in Italy. The prime minister resigns and the government is falling apart. What steps is Italy's president going to take? This just in, President Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. The White House says he tested positive this morning and is experiencing very mild symptoms. The president, who is fully vaccinated and twice boosted, has begun taking Paxlovid to help with his symptoms. He will isolate at the White House until he tests negative per White House protocol. His spokesperson says he will continue to carry out all of his duties from his residence, including planned meetings via phone or Zoom. A White House official tried to clarify remarks from President Biden yesterday where he appeared to say that he currently has cancer. Biden was commenting on an upcoming round of climate-related executive actions. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. During a speech about climate initiatives Wednesday, President Biden described emissions from oil refineries near his childhood home in Delaware. The Washington Free Beacon shared the clip on Twitter. The first frost, you know what was happening. It had to put on your windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. In response, White House spokesman Andrew Bates retweeted Glenn Kessler, the editor-in-chief writer of The Washington Post's Fact Checker. He suggested that Biden was referring to a previous doctor's report that said he had non-melanoma skin cancers removed. But Biden used present tense, not past tense. Last year, Biden's physician issued a report saying the president did not have any current cancers. He said Biden's non-melanoma cancer was due to time in the sun, not exposure to chemicals due to oil production. It's unclear why Biden attributed his cancer to oil refineries. We contacted the White House for comment. Meanwhile, at the same speech Wednesday, Biden announced new steps to address the climate after facing resistance in Congress. I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional actions. The White House says Wednesday's executive actions would create a wind energy area in the Gulf of Mexico covering 700,000 acres with the potential to power more than 3 million homes and target $2.3 billion in funding for communities most affected by the scorching heat including providing cooling centers and air conditioning. Some Democrat lawmakers asked Biden to declare a climate emergency. It would allow more funding and more aggressive action. But Republicans are concerned climate mandates would allow the government to take more control of people's lives. The president Wednesday stopped short of declaring a climate emergency, for now at least. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. 
President Biden plans to speak with Chinese leader Xi Jinping at a moment of simmering tensions between the countries. Biden told reporters, quote, I think I'll be talking to President Xi within the next 10 days. The long-planned call between the two leaders would come at a crucial moment given ongoing tensions over the status of Taiwan. The Biden administration is weighing a sharp reduction in tariffs on goods imported from China to help reduce inflation pressures on American consumers. However, critics say this will have little effect on reducing inflation. A global minimum tax for multinational companies. That's what almost all European countries and the Biden administration want. But some Republicans and one European nation are working together to stop the plan. Here are the details. Some House Republicans met with Hungarian officials signaling collective opposition against a global minimum tax of 15 percent on multinational companies. The Republicans said in a statement that they share concerns over the global minimum tax harming our country's job creation and economic growth. They say Congress will not agree to a plan that undermines its constitutional tax-writing authority. The minimum tax is supported by the Biden administration in all European Union nations besides Hungary in over 130 countries in total. In mid-June, Hungary blocked the EU from going forward with a deal to turn the 15% tax directive into law. After that, the Biden Treasury Department announced it was terminating a tax treaty the United States has had with Hungary since 1979. However, Hungarian officials seem to appreciate the support they got from House Republicans. The country's foreign minister said an entire line of congressmen and senators stood by Hungary when the administration suspended the bilateral tax agreement in revenge for a veto against a global minimum tax. Hungary has a corporate tax rate of 9 percent, one of the lowest rates in Europe. The United States has a current rate of 21 percent. The Treasury Department says it remains committed to finalizing a global minimum tax. The department told Politico last week that it's too important for our economic strength and competitiveness to not finalize this agreement and will continue to look at every avenue possible to get it done. In order for the global tax to be put in place, each of the over 130 countries would need to amend their own tax laws to align with the tax scheme. In an attempt to reform the way our presidential votes are counted, senators from both sides of the aisle are pushing for a change to the electoral count process. Would the vice president be able to reject electoral votes, as former President Trump once suggested that Vice President Pence should do? A bipartisan bill was introduced in the Senate on Wednesday. It would reform the Electoral Count Act of 1887. It also aims to clarify the role of the vice president in certifying election results. According to the proposed bill, the vice president has only a ceremonial role in the electoral process. The bill says the vice president cannot solely accept or reject results. During the 2020 election, then-President Trump suggested that Vice President Pence should reject the electoral votes submitted by some states. The bill would also raise the threshold for objection to a state's electoral votes. In order for an objection to be filed, it would need at least one-fifth of all members of both the House and the Senate. Right now, only one member from each chamber is needed. The Senate will hold a hearing on the bill in the next few weeks. A party spokesperson says the Texas GOP is stepping up election integrity efforts in the state. Since former U.S. President Donald Trump left office in 2021, the Lone Star State's Republican Party has trained over 5,000 election workers and poll watchers. The party spokesperson says it's part of an effort to set the goalpost for improving election integrity statewide and beyond. The poll watchers would observe the election and report irregularities and violations of the election code, if any, to election officials. All political parties are allowed to hire election workers to observe all parts of election administration. The spokesperson told the Epic Times that when it comes to good Republican policy, Texas should be leading the way. The move is part of what the Texas GOP convention set as one of its priorities last month.
In 2017, two newspapers reported that the Trump campaign was linked to Russian interference during the 2016 presidential race. And for that, they each received a Pulitzer Prize. But should they now return their prizes? NTD's Arlene Richards reports. For three years, former President Donald Trump called on the Pulitzer Prize board to take back top honors awarded to the Washington Post and New York Times in 2018. Both outlets reported on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Reports that Trump says are disinformation based on a false link between the Kremlin and the Trump campaign. But the board has decided the prizes will stand. In a statement, the board said information contained in the submitted articles hadn't been proven false by any new facts after the prizes were awarded. Hans Manka, an investigative journalist who's reported extensively on what he calls the Russia collusion narrative, disagrees with the board's decision. My immediate response is that they should have rescinded those prizes. I've gone through the articles that the Pulitzer board cited, and there are a lot of problems there, and they haven't addressed those problems. Pulitzer Prize spokesperson Marjorie Miller explained in an email to NTD the reviewers only looked at 20 stories reported by the outlets in 2017. She said in the email, of course, reviewers were aware of subsequent news events, but as the statement said, no facts emerged to discredit the reporting in the stories. The prizes stand. Monka thinks the reviewers ignored relevant facts reported after 2017. He said the New York Times was more careful in its reporting, but still relied on inaccurate information. For example... They really focus on, is, uh, for which they certainly should withdraw, is the, uh, the Trump Jr. meeting with the Russian lawyer that everyone's heard about, the Trump Tower meeting. So there's a bunch of articles in the Pulitzer Board citations that, well, they cite as being so brilliant, where um, they, they talk about that meeting. Well, as it turns out, that meeting was a complete, you know, nothing burger. On the other hand, the Washington Post, he said, should withdraw a lot of its articles. And if you look at the dates of when they published their articles and what those articles said, much of it is now debunked. For example... The very first story they cite is um, a February um, 2017 story about General Flynn. The fact that General Flynn is supposed to have lied about sanctions. Well, we now know that General Flynn never, ever mentioned sanctions. <laughs> that was just never discussed uh, when he spoke to the Russian ambassador on the phone. So, of course, that, that basically disproves the entire story. The Washington Post said in an email to NTD that it had no comment. The New York Times said in an email to NTD it didn't have anything further to add to the board's decision. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The funeral for Ivana Trump was held at St. Vincent Ferrer Church in New York City. She was a socialite and the first wife of former U.S. President Donald Trump, who attended her funeral. Ivana Trump died at age 73 in her New York City apartment on July 14th. New York City's chief medical examiner says her death was the result of a fall where she suffered blunt force trauma to her torso. A police spokesperson said Ivana Trump had been found dead on the stairs inside her apartment and that foul play was not suspected. Friends of Ivana told the New York Post she had hip problems and was having trouble walking. Ivana was married to Donald Trump from 1977 to 1992. She is the mother of their children, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump. She was a businesswoman and a television personality. And coming up, an Indiana Fire Department is praising a pizza delivery man who risked his life to rescue people from a burning house, injuring himself in the process. And New York City officials send seized ancient goods worth $14 million back to Italy. 
The five-year operation took artwork and historical artifacts off the black market. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. A Yemeni national held at the U.S. detention facility in Cuba for 20 years has been cleared for release. According to the Department of Defense, Khalid Amen Qasim will be freed without charge or trial. A governing body made up of representatives from six federal agencies decides whether detainees at the Guantanamo prison still need to be held. They recently determined it is no longer necessary to hold Qasim and that he is no longer a significant threat to the U.S. Qasim's attorney said in a press release that they're thrilled. According to the Defense Department, Qasim will be transferred to a country with a strong reintegration and rehabilitation program. Qasim is one of 20 detainees who have been cleared for release but are still awaiting transfer from Guantanamo. Fourteen others remain. The Justice Department says it seized about $500,000 in cryptocurrency. It says two American medical centers paid the money to North Korean state-backed hackers after ransomware attacks. The deputy attorney general said the seized funds include ransoms paid by health care providers in Kansas and Colorado in 2021 and 2022. One of the hospitals notified the FBI after paying a ransom. The FBI traced the payment and identified China-based money launders. They assisted North Korean state-sponsored hackers in converting the money. Authorities seized the contents of the cryptocurrency accounts following the investigation. It led the FBI, Treasury Department, and Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to issue a joint advisory. They warned of the Maui ransomware used in the attacks. U.S. authorities warned that paying a ransom does not ensure the recovery of files, and they said it also emboldens adversaries to target more organizations. The FBI has added Omar Alexander Cardenas to its top 10 most wanted fugitives list. He's wanted for allegedly murdering a man in Los Angeles in August 2019 and on a federal arrest warrant for an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. He allegedly fired several shots from a semi-automatic handgun, hitting a man standing outside a barber shop in the head, killing him. The FBI says he's a member of the Pierce Street Gang and goes by the nickname Dollar. A reward of up to $100,000 is being offered for information leading to his arrest. The FBI is asking anyone with information to contact them. A man has been found guilty in the murder of retired St. Louis police captain David Dorn, who died protecting a business from looters amid the 2020 George Floyd riots. 77-year-old Dorn was shot and killed in the early hours outside a friend's pawn shop in North St. Louis. He arrived there in response to an alarm during an evening filled with violence and looting. Dorn retired from the St. Louis police in 2007 after having served for 38 years. He approached the pawn shop and fired warning shots to ward off looters who were ransacking the business. On Wednesday, 26-year-old Stefan Cannon was found guilty of first-degree murder in the retired police captain's death. The lead prosecutor told jurors that Cannon deliberated before firing 10 shots at, quote, a good man who dedicated his entire life to doing nothing but helping others. And over in Indiana, a heroic act by a pizza delivery man who risked his life to save a family from a burning home. A local fire department official describes the man's actions that night. He remembered that there was a a window on the second floor uh, bedroom that he had been in. And uh, so he took the six-year-old in his arms upstairs, broke out the window and received some injuries, substantial injuries to an arm, uh, breaking the glass and uh, cleared the window. And then he uh, uh, jumped out the window with the six-year-old. 
Just after midnight on July 11th, 25-year-old pizza delivery man Nick Bostic was driving in Lafayette, Indiana when he noticed the burning home. His instinct to help kicked in immediately and he ran towards the flames. Bostic told the fire department he found an 18-year-old woman with a 14-year-old, a 13-year-old and a 2-year-old and led them to safety outside. It was then that Bostic was told that a 6-year-old girl was still in the burning home, so he went back inside. Bostic was released from the hospital on July 13th. A GoFundMe organized by Bostic's cousin has already received more than $490,000 in donations, almost five times the fundraiser's original goal of $100,000. Officials with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office turned over to Italian authorities almost $14 million worth of seized artwork and historical artifacts. It's part of a years-long effort to repatriate such goods that have been circulating on the black market. The 142 pieces were seized by authorities from art galleries and private collectors over a period of five years. They will now be shipped back to their homeland. Italian officials say they plan to display some of the items at a museum in Rome. It's dedicated to art that has been taken off the black market from outside Italy. One of the most prized items in the collection is a fresco taken from the ancient city of Herculaneum, which, along with Pompeii, was destroyed with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius almost 2,000 years ago. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, 2,400 NATO troops from 19 countries gather in Germany for artillery exercises. The exercises include some weapon systems deployed in the Ukraine war. And Europe is racing to look for ways to reduce Russian gas dependence. It's based on a belief that Russia could further reduce or cut off its gas supply to Europe. Find out more right after this short break. A Russian official says Moscow's military now plans to go beyond the eastern Donbass region. The Kremlin's forces have shelled eastern and southern Ukraine. Here are the details. Moscow's military goals in Ukraine now go beyond the eastern Donbass region, where Russia initially claimed it wanted to defend breakaway Ukrainian provinces. She meets Mosul. The shift was articulated on Wednesday by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who said that one reason Russia might expand what it calls its special operation are the longer-range rockets and artillery the U.S. and NATO allies have been funneling to Ukraine, led by President Volodymyr Zelensky, to beat back the Russian invasion. That means the geographical tasks of the special operation will extend still further from the current line because we cannot allow the part of Ukraine that will be controlled by Zelensky or whoever replaces him to contain weapons that will pose a direct threat to our territory and the territory of the republics that have declared independence, those that want to determine their own future. Lavrov's comments are the clearest acknowledgement yet that Russia's objectives have expanded over the five months of war. That's not a surprise to, uh, to any of us or anybody in Europe or anybody around the globe. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told reporters on Wednesday Lavrov's statements confirmed what Washington and its allies had suspected were Russian President Vladimir Putin's objectives all along. He uh, has stated a number of times that, you know, this is a limited operation focused on, uh, on the Donbass. Uh, his actions have proven uh, otherwise. 
After failing to capture the capital Kiev at the outset of the invasion, Russia has shifted to a campaign of devastating bombardments to cement and extend its control of Ukraine's south and east. Ukraine says Russian forces have intensified long-distance strikes on targets far from the front, killing large numbers of civilians. Moscow says it is hitting military targets. In a visit to Washington, Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska appealed to U.S. lawmakers to provide more arms for her country. The Kremlin has refuted rumors that President Putin is unwell. A spokesperson said the president is in good health and called speculation from other countries fake. Putin has been in the public eye quite often since waging war against Ukraine, and in recent months his health has come under international scrutiny. During meetings with officials, he was filmed sitting at opposite ends of a long table as a precaution against COVID. At times, he was caught walking stiffly. In a public appearance this week, Putin was spotted coughing. According to his own account, he caught a slight cold during his visit to Iran the day before. NATO forces from 19 countries were in Grafenwar, Germany, on Wednesday for a multinational artillery exercise. According to organizers, around 2,400 troops from the U.S., the United Kingdom, and across Europe took part in the Dynamic Front 22 exercises. The aim of the exercises is to increase readiness, lethality, and interoperability in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We take this exercise that we've been doing for years and grow it to a point that we uh, are technically and tactically uh, compatible with one another, that we're personally and professionally compatible with one another, and that we achieve that interoperability amongst the different members of the alliance and our uh, partners here in theaters. The exercises included some weapons deployed in the Ukraine conflict, such as the U.S.-made M270 multiple launch rocket system. Ukraine said on July 15th that the first M270 systems had arrived in the country, but did not specify which country had donated them. The Dynamic Front 22 exercises run from July 6th to July 24th in the Grafenvar training area in southern Germany. Organizers said the drills would involve 55 weapon systems. The European Union has drawn up targets for curbing gas usage. That's in preparation for further reductions of Russian gas. Here's more. Europe is racing to find ways to cut gas usage. That after a new warning from Russian President Vladimir Putin. Speaking this week, he said that there could be further cuts to supplies via a key pipeline. The comments come just hours before the Nord Stream 1 route is due to reopen. It's been shut for servicing, and some had feared Russia might delay a restart. The pipeline resume operations on Thursday, but at what capacity looks uncertain. Russia had already cut flows through Nord Stream to 40% of normal levels before the stoppage. The disruptions have hampered European efforts to refill gas storage facilities before the winter. That raises the risks of shortages and rationing. Now the EU has set a target for cutting gas consumption in the bloc. It wants member states to reduce usage by 15% between August and March compared with previous years. The target could be made binding in an emergency if the EU declares a serious gas shortage. It's hoped the proposals could be approved within days, though Poland and some other states aren't keen. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says Europe has to act. Overall, the flow of Russian gas is now less than one-third to what it used to be, for example, at the same time last year. Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. 
And therefore, in any event, whether it's a partial major cutoff of Russian gas or a total cutoff of Russian gas, Europe needs to be ready. Putin denies such charges, saying Russia and energy giant Gazprom are reliable partners. He says any shortfall in supplies is due to problems with pipeline equipment. Coming up, a former U.S. defense secretary is telling Washington to rethink its one-China strategy. He says the policy is useless under the current climate. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. Sri Lanka's president-elect was sworn in by the chief justice. Ahead of him is the worst economic crisis the country has seen in decades. Inflation, shortages of basic goods, and corruption have been plaguing Sri Lanka and its people for months. A lack of foreign currency also led to shortages of essentials like fuel, food, and medicine. Last week, the country's former president ran away and resigned from his post. That sparked mass riots with hundreds of thousands occupying government buildings in Colombo. The president-elect took office following his victory in Wednesday's parliamentary elections. Prior to that, he served six terms as the country's prime minister. But for some, he is not the best choice for the country's leadership. Protesters even burned down his house this month when he was still prime minister. The new president has pledged to be a friend of the people. He told reporters that his leadership will be different from that of his predecessor. And moving to Indonesia, the country's president, Joko Widodo, is expected to visit China next week. That's according to the Chinese foreign ministry. Widodo received an invitation from the Chinese leader for the trip. He's expected to meet with Xi Jinping and Premier Li Keqiang. It will make him the first foreign leader in two years to be received individually by Beijing since February's Winter Olympics. Indonesia currently holds the G20 presidency and will host this year's summit of G20 leaders in Bali in November. Aside from the Winter Olympics, Beijing has not hosted any foreign leaders individually since strict border measures were put in place in 2020 following the COVID-19 outbreak. A former defense secretary is calling on the Biden administration to make its stance clear on whether it would come to Taiwan's defense if Beijing were to launch an invasion. Here's more. Former U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper is calling on Washington to reevaluate its one-China policy. He says it's now useless. The one-China policy has outlived its usefulness, that it is time to move away from strategic ambiguity. I think it's important that we begin that national discussion back in the United States. During the Chinese Civil War, Taiwan's current government fled from mainland China, where the Chinese Communist Party later took power. Despite that, Beijing sees Taiwan as part of its territory, even though the communist regime never ruled the island. Beijing has also threatened to take Taiwan by force, The U.S. doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but Washington is required by law to provide the island with the means to defend itself. The U.S. also maintains a strategy called strategic ambiguity. It means Washington does not make clear whether it would come to Taiwan's defense in the case of a Chinese invasion. But calls to change that stance have grown as the Chinese regime ramps up its military development and persists in its threat to take Taiwan by force. Esper points to the urgency. The greatest challenge facing the democracies of the West today is not in Russia. It is here in Asia, where China continues to challenge the rule-based international order. Taiwan is on the front lines. It is important that the democracies of the West stand up and defend thriving democracies such as Taiwan against the bullying 
In response, Taiwan's president thanked Esper for his support. The strength of alliances between democratic partners must be strengthened to work together to defend peace and the values of democratic freedom. Back in Washington, the U.S. Senate Foreign Affairs Committee is expected to review a bill in August. Called the Taiwan Policy Act, the bipartisan bill aims to revamp Washington's Taiwan policy. Sponsors include Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat, and Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican. Both say the bill would push the most comprehensive restructuring of U.S. policy toward Taiwan in over four decades. If passed, the rule would require the president to slap sanctions on Chinese officials and the head of the Communist Party in the case that Beijing invades Taiwan. It would also provide Taiwan with $4.5 billion in military assistance over the next four years. Prosecutors in South Korea have launched a search and seizure operation targeting the country's cryptocurrency exchanges and related offices. A spokesman disclosed that a total of 15 locations have been raided. The operation was allegedly intended to collect evidence of illegal practices involving the collapse of Luna. Luna, or technically Terra, is the name of a crypto asset. Its value fell to practically zero in May with the collapse of stablecoin TerraUSD. The latter had been pegged to the U.S. dollar and was exchangeable with Luna. Both Luna and TerraUSD were created by Terraform Labs, a Seoul-based blockchain platform founded in 2018. Investors have filed fraud charges against the co-founders of Terraform Labs, Do Kwon and Daniel Shin. The two are thought to be associated with the failed cryptocurrency. The company's several employees were also put on a no-fly list last month. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, Boris Johnson delivers his farewell message at his last public address as prime minister, but he ends on a humorous note that opens the question of his return. And a vessel spills 30,000 gallons of fuel in the Bahamas. The spill occurred off the Bahamas resort island of Exuma, and the island is famed for its clear waters and unique beaches. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. In Italy, the political situation is worsening. The prime minister has resigned and the government is falling apart, resulting in financial markets taking a hit. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi handed in his resignation today. The political crisis has ended months of stability in Italy. Now Italian stocks and bonds are selling off sharply. Draghi was considering his resignation last week after one of his partners failed to back him in a confidence vote. The president then rejected his resignation and told him to go before parliament to keep the coalition alive. Apparently, it didn't work. Now the country's president has to take the next steps. Political sources say that he will likely dissolve parliament and call for early elections in October. Boris Johnson has delivered his final address as the UK's Prime Minister, where he said his mission was largely accomplished. He cheerfully finished his speech by saying, hasta la vista, baby. We've got more from NTD's Jane Worrell. Some MPs took the opportunity to pay tribute to the Prime Minister, including Crispin Blunt MP. He has uh, the gratitude of my constituents that can identify the wood from the trees and myself for his leadership over the last year. 
But it wasn't all gratitude. The Prime Minister's conduct was criticised by the leaders of the Lib Dems and the Labour Party. Sir Keir Starmer saying that the relationship between the opposition and the leader is never easy. The Westminster leader of the Scottish National Party had this to say. That as well as a record breaker, the Prime Minister is a rule breaker, illegally shutting down Parliament, parting through the pandemic, handing out PPE contracts to cronies, unilaterally changing the ministerial code. And let us not forget, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is still under investigation because he can't be trusted to tell the truth. But the Prime Minister defended his legacy, and there was this grand finale too from Sir Edward Lee. Can I thank him for his insistence on rolling out the AstraZeneca jab, which has saved thousands of lives on behalf of 17.4 million people who voted Brexit? May I thank him for restoring people's belief in democracy? On behalf of Northern Towns, may I thank him for his commitment to levelling up? And most of all, on behalf of the people of Ukraine, may I thank him for holding high the torch of freedom and ensuring that that country is not a vassal state. For true grit and determination, keep going and thank you. At the end of the session, he gave some advice to his successor, saying to stick up for freedoms and for Ukraine, stay close to the Americans, cut taxes, deregulate, and it's not Twitter that counts. Finally, he ended with this. Mission largely accomplished. For now, I want to thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all the wonderful staff of the House of Commons. I want to thank all my friends and colleagues. I want to thank my right friend uh, opposite, Mr Speaker. Uh, I want to thank everybody here and... Hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. MPs were on their feet, cheering in the chamber. And that final remark certainly raises the question, will he be back? Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. An out vessel delivering fuel to the Bahamas resort island of Great Exuma. The country's acting prime minister said yesterday that the ship had spilled around 30,000 gallons. Exuma is famed for its white sand beaches and crystal blue waters, as well as beaches where tourists can swim with pigs. It was not immediately evident what environmental impact the spill had. Cooper said the fuel was being delivered by a vessel called the Arabian and that the fuel had been contracted by a Bahamas company called Sun Oil. He said executives from Sun Oil were cooperating in efforts to mitigate the spill. Sun Oil did not immediately respond to a request for comment. A remote Greek island has pioneered a new waste management model and recycling plant. The island now recycles most of its trash and prides itself for being a zero-waste island. Here are the details. Authorities on the remote Greek island of Telos announced this week that more than 80% of the island's trash is now being recycled. A landfill where untreated garbage was once buried into a hillside has been permanently closed. Telos is slightly larger than New York's Manhattan and 15 hours away from the Greek mainland by ferry. The island has just 500 year-round inhabitants. Today is a very important day because imagine that the place we are at was a sanitary landfill that had essentially been turned into a garbage dump. In other words, the work was not done properly. 
now you see this. It has no relation to what used to exist here. You can easily come and have a coffee there. Starting in December, Telos piloted a home trash pickup scheme. Residents receive recycling kits and are asked to wash and separate household waste. The island's new recycling plant separates trash to produce powdered glass, cement mix, compressed cardboard, and other reusable items. The plant currently processes around two tons of waste per week. Roughly a third is composted and 15 percent classed as non-recyclable is sterilized and shredded to be used in construction. Our model can guarantee and can succeed these recycling rates as long as the civilians uh, want it and uh, the government provides us uh, a multi-year contract in order for us to ensure that uh, despite of all the possible changes uh, at the elections of the municipalities uh, and the prefectures, we will stay here and we will guarantee the recycling rates. The mayor of Tilos says she's proud of what the island has been able to achieve. The energy project was the culmination of many years of efforts. It was very big, very powerful. There was a lot of funding, and it made our island the first energy-independent island in the Mediterranean, and the first green island in the Mediterranean. The recycling model on Telos could act as a blueprint for other Greek islands, including popular holiday destinations that struggle with waste disposal. A Belgian company is taking an innovative approach to fighting urban waste. They've managed to turn coffee grounds into edible mushrooms and even insulating tiles for construction. Let's take a look at how it's done. In a cellar in Brussels, clusters of oyster mushrooms emerge from a soil made of straw and coffee grounds. Belgian mushroom grower Perma Fungi says making the mycelium can help reduce plastic waste. These mushrooms are growing mainly on coffee grounds. We add a bit of straw so the grounds aren't too compact, which means they're growing on urban waste. The company is looking to lead the way for the future of sustainability in the kitchen. Each day we uh, throw away a lot of coffee and this coffee to be produced needs a lot of energy uh, from uh, the, the cultivation uh, to the transportation to, to Europe, and it's just a pity not to use it more than a few minutes uh, to drink a coffee. More than five tons of coffee grounds are collected each month from cooperating cafes across the country. The grounds are mixed in a large drum where mushroom spores are added and then transferred to sacks. After 15 days, the mushrooms are harvested and sold in organic stores. In this, there are straw and coffee grounds which have been pasteurized overnight. We added water, and this morning we added oyster mushroom spores, the mycelium, so it can develop in this environment of coffee and straw. The company also developed a new type of fungal insulating brick. Across town, a firm that loans power tools has placed the first commercial order for them. Perma Fungi calls the brick a solution to reducing carbon emissions and promoting a circular economy. A Belgian habit, um, habitant he drinks five kilogram of uh, coffee waste, uh, coffee a year, so it, well, it adds up to thousands of tons a year that are mainly being thrown away. So it's a huge potential. So on that on that side, we're not short of uh, primary resources. The company is now taking the next step 
securing investment to expand production. They hope to be producing up to 13 tons of mycelial material per month by 2025. And more in innovation news, Colorado startup Boom Supersonic has unveiled the latest version of their flagship airliner Overture. They hope it will nearly cut the flying time from New York to London in half. Dubbed the Son of Concord, the aircraft will carry between 65 and 80 business class passengers at twice the speed of today's airliners. It's set to run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel and fly at Mach 1.7 over water and just under Mach 1 over land. From day one of the program, we decided that our three core design principles was, of course, speed, but also safety and, importantly, sustainability. And what we mean by sustainability is that we have to be able to operate this aircraft or allow our operators to uh, run Overture at net zero carbon, reduce the noise levels that you saw on, um, on Concorde, as well as for BOOM itself to be net zero carbon, which we will be by 2025 as an organization. Overture will use the world's first automated noise reduction system. That means it will fly without afterburners, which will produce a quieter experience both for passengers and airport communities. The in-flight experience will be different too. It will offer heads-up data displays in the windows and a view of the stars even during daylight. That's because they'll have a moon roof where you can see the stars when you're cruising at 60,000 feet. The company says Overture will cut the flight time from New York to London to just three and a half hours, and it says the trip from LA to Sydney will be just over eight hours. The company is targeting a maiden flight in 2026 with certification leading to commercial flights in 2029. NASA is getting ready to make another giant leap for mankind. The space agency announced the target dates for the launch of the first test flight under its Artemis program. NASA says they are targeting the end of August or the beginning of September for the first uncrewed test flight. They are specifically looking at either August 29th, September 2nd, or September 5th. If all goes according to plan, the test flight launch from the Kennedy Space Center will circle the moon, then splash back down to Earth a few weeks later. NASA aspires to return American astronauts to the moon by 2025. And coming up, it's been 23 years since the Chinese Communist Party began persecuting adherents of the spiritual practice Falun Gong. We hear one man's story of how he did not back down right after the break. Yesterday, July 20th, marked 23 years since the persecution of Falun Gong began in China. The Chinese Communist Party launched a nationwide oppression against the spiritual discipline in 1999. NTD's Chen Wu sat down with a Falun Gong practitioner to hear about what he endured inside a Chinese labor camp and how he found the strength to keep going. Just a warning, some viewers may find the following content disturbing. The situation was really one of life or death. Is it worth giving up my life for justice? This is the question Stephen Yu asked himself when the Chinese Communist Party began its suppression campaign on Falun Gong on July 20, 1999. But to understand his story, let's start from the beginning. Yu began practicing the spiritual discipline in 1998 after witnessing the miraculous recovery of a friend's mother. Miss Sun was in a critical condition at that time. She had a herniated cervical disc and was on the verge of death. I went to visit because I wanted to say goodbye. 
thinking it might be the last time we would see each other. But to my surprise, she radiated health. She practically jumped up when I saw her and gave me the book, Zhuan Falun. Zhuan Falun is the primary book of teachings of the Falun Dafa practice. When it was published in 1996, it became a national bestseller in China. I felt like this was something I had been looking for my whole life. When in high school, I was actually already thinking about this. My studies were very intense at the time, and I asked myself if my life would always be in this state. I asked myself, why am I trying so hard in my studies? Is it to achieve some high job position or get rich? But after I read Dramfala, I came to understand the true purpose of life, that is, to improve oneself and eventually return to where we came from, to heaven. The discipline spread quickly across China. In seven years, an estimated 70 to 100 million people were practicing, making it one of the largest spiritual communities in the country. But in 1999, the communist regime deemed the practice's popularity a threat to its power and launched a brutal persecution campaign targeting Falun Gong. On July 22nd, you and other Falun Gong practitioners were taken into custody by police for half a day. He said that at the time, he deeply reflected on the situation and resolved not to give up the practice no matter what. I thought about how a person's life is not valued based on its length. Rather, its value comes from its greater meaning. Even if a person only has a few days to live, if the light he emits can illuminate the entire universe and shine a light into the darkness, then it was a life worth living. In 2000, Yu was again arrested and taken to Chaoyang Go labor camp. He was detained there for around a year. The sanitary conditions were very poor. So many of us were covered with scabies. One practitioner was beaten with wooden boards by non-practitioner inmates. He had all the scabies scars on his body targeted so they would burst open. Then the guards let him grow new ones. They tortured him this way. They would pry off his toenails. By torturing you little by little, they hoped to make you come to the evil side and say bad things about Falun Dafa. Falun Dafa is another name for Falun Gong. Yu explained why he never gave up. If I, for the sake of living comfortably, gave way to them and said bad things about Falun Dafa, then wouldn't that make me the same as those creating the lies? If I gave in to their demands, I would no longer be able to look at myself in the mirror. I wouldn't be able to face what kind of person I would have become. I would rather choose death. After several attempts, Yu was finally able to leave China earlier this year. He arrived in the United States in March. Upon coming to America, I can now, in Chinese or English, tell my story to anyone who is interested. I'm no longer afraid of being taken away by police or of having my calls listened in on. I think that I'm very fortunate, but at the same time, I'm quite disheartened because I don't know how many of my fellow practitioners are currently being illegally incarcerated and tortured, and they could lose their lives at any point. Yu says he will continue sharing his story and working to expose the Chinese Communist Party's persecution of Falun Gong. Chen Wu, NTD News. The persecution of Falun Gong, or Falun Dafa, a spiritual meditation practice, is ongoing in China. 
This July 20th marks 23 years of persecution by the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. Falun Gong adherents from around the United States are gathering at the nation's capital today to commemorate and raise awareness. The communist regime has been trying to extinguish the spiritual discipline since 1999. The practice offers a set of meditative exercises and moral teachings based on the values of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. But over more than two decades, the faith group's 70 million to 100 million adherents have been subjected to a long list of abuses, including beating, slave labor, sexual abuse, and being subjected to psychological drugs. Lawmakers are demanding an end to the regime's persecution of Falun Gong. Representative Scott Perry says the Chinese regime's unrelenting campaign to eradicate the group is pure evil and must end. In mid-December, Scott introduced the Falun Gong Protection Act. It's intended to sanction Chinese communist officials who perpetrated the abuse. Representative Chris Smith has chaired 76 congressional hearings on China's human rights abuses, including a hearing in May on the forced harvesting of organs from Falun Gong adherents. He described the anniversary as a grim reminder of the work still required to halt the ongoing atrocities in China. Senator Marco Rubio said in a statement, Today we solemnly remember the countless souls who were lost in that hateful campaign, as well as the many more who have tragically been subjected to horrific abuse, forced labor, torture, and worse in the years since. An unknown number of Falun Gong adherents have died as a result of state-sanctioned forced organ harvesting under the CCP's persecution. The European Parliament in May passed a resolution condemning what it calls the regime's persistent, systematic, inhumane, and state-sanctioned organ harvesting. The Cross-Party Interparliamentary Alliance on China said it commends the courage of all those who have stood against the CCP's persecution of other religious and ethnic groups in China, including Tibetan Buddhists, Christians, Uyghurs, and other predominantly Muslim Turkic groups. IPAC is an international cross-party group of legislators. They're pushing for democratic countries to take a tougher stance on the CCP and its activities on trade, security, and human rights. Lawmakers around the world also issued a statement to commemorate those who have suffered at the hands of the CCP. Forty Canadian parliamentarians from various parties are urging the federal government to call on the CCP to end its persecution of Falun Gong adherents in China. They also want the Canadian government to include a specific mention of Falun Gong among other persecuted groups in its China policy framework. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.